the show this week. My name is Stephen Perkins. I'm the editor-in-chief here at the Outset Network, and this is my podcast. This is the place where I speak to the emerging leaders within the conservative movement, and today is no exception. But there is a special thing about today's episode, Uh, and if you're listening on Tuesday, you know what it is. It's Independence Day, also known as Freedom Day, also known as America Day, also known as that day that we remember that one time that we committed treason, also known as like the greatest breakup letter day of remembrance of that. There's some commas in there and rearranging of words. But nonetheless, this is when we celebrate when we became just a a, a strong, independent um, nation. And so... I, congratulations, America, uh, for for making it this long. Um, it seems as if we're gonna, you know, we have our challenges, but I think we're gonna I think we're gonna survive. Um, I am speaking this week with Cade Marsh. Cade is the co-founder and political director of Campus Red Pack um, and the outgoing vice chairman of the College Republican National Committee. Um, outgoing in, in the sense of he's he's leaving that office, um, although I, I, I guess you could say he's an outgoing fella as well. Uh, anyways, um, Cade was uh, kind enough to come on the program this week, and I put the pressure on him because of Fourth of July episode, you have to be patriotic af. So uh, I don't know. Hopefully he did that. Hopefully he delivered on the high expectations that you people have, as if you could do any better. Cade's doing some great work, and uh, this is where we talk about some of that work. So despite this long, weird, uh, bloated intro, sit back and enjoy my interview with Cade Marsh. Cade, welcome to my podcast. How are you, sir? I am doing fantastic. Absolutely uh, glad to, to have you here. Um, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while. I have this long list of people I want to chat with, but, uh, but you were on it. And so now we're here. This is our 4th of July episode. Um, and so really the pressure is on you to to make this a patriotic moment um, and uh, and part of American history. Are you up for that challenge? You know what? I think if there's anybody in this world who can uh, perfectly embody patriotism and the it's spirit Tommy of liberty. Laren. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say Caleb Franz, but. <laughs> okay. Well, he, he is uh, he is smoking a uh, an America cigar today. Um, that sounds dangerous. Yeah. Don't smoke kids. It's bad for your health. Right. Yes, of course. Uh, all that good stuff. Um, but he did show me the ingredients and apparently it's tobacco from five other countries wrapped in an American cigar. And I don't know if that's like indicative of colonialism or just that's, that's the, the melting that's the pot. That's the most beautiful encapsulation of American imperialism I've ever heard. <laughs> so take that for what you will. But um, other than cigar conversations, excited to have you on to talk about um, kind of where conservatism is going. Um, and uh, I, I guess really first, though, how you even got involved in conservative politics or in politics uh, in general. You're the co-founder and political director of Campus Red Pack, um, which is an organization essentially doing conservative activism on college campuses, correct? Right. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit more narrowly focused than what you might think when you, you hear conservative activism. Um, you know, you think, you know, sort of, you know, Young America's Foundation or, uh, you know, Turning Point USA or College Republicans. It's really more of a campaign apparatus. Um, it was specifically designed to give Republicans a leg up 
um, in the 2016 election cycle, and it was specifically um, tethered to Florida. So, which was, you know, we'll get into it, but where I got my start in politics and um, where I was in leadership at the time. Um, you know, and so we really, uh, just militarized, um, you know, our efforts on campus. It wasn't sort of feel good messages or, or education. We went straight for the ground pounding. We were knocking doors. We were collecting votes, et cetera. Very cool. And also the outgoing, uh, vice chairman of CRNC, the college Republicans. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. Where were you born? Where were you raised? What was child Cade like? Child, child Cade like was only slightly less incorrigible than adult Cade is. Um, I was born and raised in uh, San Diego, California, though um, I've lived a bit of a gypsy lifestyle. Uh, my dad is a pastor um, and a Christian school administrator, and so we moved around um, pretty substantially. I've lived in, I think, at last count, 14 homes um, since since I was wow. born. So we lived uh, several years in San Diego, lived a couple years on the eastern shore of Maryland, moved back to San Diego, uh, where my sister was born. My brother was born in Maryland, um, so I've got two siblings. Um, and then we moved to Florida right after I graduated high school. Uh, and I graduated high school in sort of a, a weird situation. I ended up graduating actually when I was 16, which I would not suggest if you want to be um, perfectly socially adjusted heading straight into college, but um, it was it was worth it because I was able to hit the ground running in Florida. Um, and then my family abandoned me, uh, jokes, of course, but they, they left uh, Florida my sophomore year of uh, college and moved back to San Diego. So I'm actually recording this podcast uh, from San Diego. I'm, I'm out here with my family, spending some time with them. So you graduated at 16. Did you go to college at 16 or 17? Yeah, 17. Um, I took uh, a gap year mostly because um, the way I graduated high school was um, I had skipped a grade earlier in elementary school, um, mm-hmm. but then we found out we were moving midway through my junior year, and I decided, screw it. Uh, well, my mom and I decided, screw it, and we decided to compress my junior and senior years together, which meant I was taking absurd course loads and um, doing uh, like CLEP tests and stuff to get high school credit for it. Um, you know, and so I took a gap year once we got to Florida because I hadn't done any of the college admission stuff. I'd missed all the windows. So the gap year kind of saved me. It, uh, it made me slightly less cringeworthy on campus. <laughs> God bless. Um, what university did you go to and what did you go for? Um, I graduated from Palm Beach Atlantic University, <clears throat> which is a small Christian school in West Palm Beach, Florida. About 3,600 undergraduate students. Very, very small. It doesn't, um, doesn't sound like a bad place to go to school. No, especially for, you know, politics. And and I'd always been active, uh, or sorry, engaged in politics. I'd always sort of known, you know, what I believed. I grew up in, you know, the waspy, you know, of waspy households, um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants for, for those who don't know the term. Um, you know, and so I, I had a pretty solid basis on some of the issues that, that genuinely resonated with me. Um, but getting to Palm Beach, I was immediately thrown into um, the richest county in the country, um, simultaneously juxtaposed with one of very few swing uh, regions in the largest swing state in the nation. And so I was the beneficiary of just absurd levels of political activism, um, you know, on the part of uh, young people, but um, specifically um, on, the, on, uh, on the part of the Republican Party. And so um, I was able to find a home uh, very, very quickly. I actually restarted the college Republican chapter on my campus uh, first semester of my sophomore year. Um, it had gone defunct. Um, again, very, very small school, keep in mind. Uh, gone defunct because the chairwoman 
uh, Jenna Steffens, who was incredible, um, had taken a semester abroad in Germany um, and then had come back and had senioritis like crazy. So um, she sort of passed the club down to me. Um, and I grew it from three members to eight members. So um, you can tell I was just a stellar uh, chapter chair. Um, just absolutely. Hey, that's growth, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, I suppose. But, you know, <laughs> at a school that's, you know, 80% evangelical Christian, um, you know, I knew that there was more. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> pardon me. I got involved in state leadership for the College Republicans. For those who don't know, College Republicans is very much organized, sort of like a, a, a triple federalist sort of society. Um, chapter levels have more or less complete autonomy, but they engage with and help set the governing, um, you know, uh, message and, and method for, um, individual state federations of which there are 51, <clears throat> we at uh, 52, sorry, we include Washington DC and Puerto Rico as, uh, as sort of federations on their own, right. Even though it's they're nice not states. Yeah. Right. We, uh, we figured we'd throw them a bone. They, they have enough to deal with taxation without representation. Um, so, uh, anyways, I got involved in statewide leadership. I ran on a ticket for, C, uh, for FFCR leadership, Florida Federation of College Republicans with, um, one of my now best friends, John Riveris. Um, and I became executive director for the state for a year. Um, at the same time, I turned over control of the chapter to my successor, Cassie Stanton, who, um, blew it out of the water. Uh, the club grew from eight members to almost 250 members in the course of six months, um, you know, we made headlines and, and a lot of what we did was, um, was just, pu- you know, pull on the resources that we'd already accumulated the, the contacts that we'd made leadership Institute specifically shout out. Um, they're, they're amazing, uh, was of, uh, it's just absolutely, um, it paramount importance in what we did. I, I took a dozen of the college Republicans that Cassie had recruited, um, sort of her class of, of recruits. And we went to a uh, youth leadership school in Tallahassee. So these kids drove eight hours both ways to get to Tallahassee, um, uh, to go through this training. And, um, we came back and sort of during this training and, you know, talking to people and I had sort of a fragment of an idea, I had a little bit of a, a sliver of a plan, um, and so we, we, we train these kids in how to execute um, what Morton Blackwell invented forever ago and perfected as a campus canvas, um, and we adapted it for the modern age. Um, and what we did was we got these kids, these 12, I think it was 12, might have been 10 by the time we were done, um, activists sort of, you know, souped up and ready to go. And then we deployed them on campus, and their job was to recruit all of their friends. And so we had dorm captains, we had floor captains. Um, and we would go through and we, we did not stop until we had spoken to every single person on college campus, any, uh, on our college campus, 30, 3,600 of them, um, actually a little bit less cause not everybody lived on campus. But, um, you know, after doing that, we accumulated, you know, upwards of 500 registrations for, uh, the college Republican chapter. We recruited maybe 250, 300 new Republican voter registrations. Um, and we turned those in and, um, you know, we realized, you know, at that point, I, I realized, and uh, my partner Lauren Cooley um, on campus Red Pack um, was was kind of involved in this process, but she came into play a little bit later. Once we'd executed this, I realized, you know, with my term as executive director for um, the Florida CRs, so the sort of the second in command, um, you know, colloquially, if if nothing else, um, that I had a window of opportunity um, to execute something like this on a much larger scale. Uh, we were getting about 10% of the college students that we talked to uh, registered as Republicans. And so um, I sat down with my friend Lauren, and we sketched out a plan. Um, and I, I ran and, and won 
state chair for the state of Florida. Um, and the first thing we did was um, we sat down and we raised just shy of a quarter million dollars through the apparatus that is now known as uh, Campus Red Pack. Um, and Campus Red Pack working together with um, you know, everybody that we were legally allowed to, um, you know, throughout that process at the end of the year by replicating the same process we had at PBA by, you know, digitally canvassing to find initial volunteers, getting people empowered and plugging them in on campus and having them knock doors um, and talk to, you know, fellow peers. You know, our motto is peer to peer, dorm to dorm, uh, door to door. Um, you know, we were able to get uh, just shy of 80,000. We were able to collect just shy of 80,000 um, uh, votes for Republican candidates in the state of Florida that we would not have had otherwise. Um, and we were able to register just shy of 11,000 new Republican voters. And uh, if you'll remember, uh, that's in addition to contacting over a million um, individuals on college campus. So a lot of these people had never been contacted by a campaign before in their life. I'm sure you know a lot of the millennial listeners here you know, we'll understand that uh, campaigns just don't care about us. You know, most of the time we're not quote unquote super voters. And mm-hmm. so we're not spending money on, um, you know, and so I like to think we changed even more minds than that. Um, Trump won Florida by about 116,000 votes and change. So, um, you know, a, a so- solid portion of uh, the the margin we can directly attribute to our efforts. Um, and I like to think, you know, sort of uh, in my own uh, parallel universe where I'm king of the world that that we're responsible for throwing Florida's 27 electoral votes into Trump's column. Well, there you go. But, uh, but love, love it, love it or hate it, you know, blame me for it or 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 uh, applaud us for it. But it's something that we we put a lot of time into one way or the other. Oh, well, there's plenty to blame uh, blame on you, kid. So don't worry <laughs> about that. Um, so so that I mean, obviously you were successful on the college campuses. Um, and I want to, let's go down that hole a little bit. Um, when I was in college Republicans, when I was the chairman of my CR chapter, I found the biggest challenge was that Republican label. Um, and I, and I found that people, uh, were very open to some of the more nonpartisan organizations, um, that had kind of, it was message first, but with CRs, at least at the time and the chapter resources that we were given, it seemed as if the the preference was we're not hiding from the fact that we're Republicans that were affiliated with the party, um, but nonetheless it persisted to be um, to be a deterrent for many people on campus. Did you encounter any of that? I understand you were at a it sounds like a more conservative school, but um, what do you know about kind of that mentality on campus and what has been done to work against that? Absolutely. And that is, to this day, one of the biggest issues that college Republicans face. Um, and you were chair, if if I recall, in the like 2014, 2015 uh, sort of time period. And as, as, as silly as this sounds, but the dynamic on campus has changed so drastically since then that we actually have a, a fighting chance. I don't want to say a leg up, but we have a fighting chance. People have started to see that, you know, what it is that you know, they're told the world is supposed to look like is not necessarily the only way to view it. Conservatives have become more uh, outspoken, um, you know, on all kinds of issues ranging from people like Ann Coulter and Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, all the way to people like, um, you know, Ben Shapiro or, um, you know, Laura Ingram. These people who, you know, espouse different wings of the Republican Party but are no longer afraid to to speak their mind, you know, sort of consequences be damned. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on uh, on on this podcast, I'll, I'll try. Children to keep it don't typically listen to my show. 
Okay. Well, good to know that there's no Democrats listening. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, yeah, I, I think I think it's legitimately um, a, 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 an issue and a very valid concern. Um, and what we did to get around it, to be perfectly honest, and we had a huge advantage in Florida, was we just made sure that all of the volunteers that we were sending out door to door were super attractive. I mean, as <laughs> as as dumb as that sounds, that was um, my problem. Damn. <laughs> well, what well, well, the. The conversation gets a lot easier if you're able to personalize. People have this idea of Republicans being old, rich, white men, sort of, you know, staring down their nose at the masses, yeah. you know, scars and backfilled in uh, in smoke-filled rooms, etc. Um, you know, but if you've got a if you've got a you know a 21 year old, six foot two frat guy knocking on a door, um, you know, it, it's it's a lot harder for people to be like, oh, you're just a Republican because you know you hate you know poor people, or you know, if you've got a you know a, a, a you know a, uh, like a charity all-star for a sorority, um, you know, who's already known on campus and has an incredible reputation for being sort of, you know, humanitarian, you know, leading a team of volunteers around, you know, her own sorority house or, or, a, 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 an all-female dorm, you, you've got a fighting chance really, because people begin to attach sort of the stigma that they've been given to, uh, sorry, the label, the, the, the stigma attached to the label is replaced by the stigma sort of surrounding the individuals. It's really about exploiting, um, you know, peers and, and exploiting has got such a negative connotation, you know, to it. But what it did was it humanized the message when it was delivered by another 21 year old, when it was delivered by somebody who you've seen on campus, somebody who has, um, you know, sat next to you in biology, somebody who's whined about a group project, you know, it, it, it humanizes it and makes it seem like it's something that you can believe in because it's not just talking points. It's not just, you know, flowery rhetoric and useless political saber rattling. It's somebody that, you know, if you don't necessarily care about them, you know, you, you can project yourself onto them and realize that, you know, just because somebody has differing beliefs or they have beliefs that differ from what you're told to believe doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, bad people out to kill the poor. Um, you know, and I think that was really our, our biggest weapon. Um, and that was what we did. And, you know, Leadership Institute is exceptional at this. They teach you to send your volunteers out in teams of uh, teams of two, guy and girl. You send a guy and you send a girl and they go, they go door knocking together on the same floor. Um, and it just makes sense because you're able to, to it, it just diffuse so many stereotypes. You know, um, you know, Republicans hate women. Well, not really. Um, you know, Republicans are all, you know, old, rich white men. Well, you know, it, it, it's really funny when, you know, 40 to 50 percent of our volunteer forces. And again, this is Florida. So we've got a bit of a hodgepodge. You know, thing when when forty to fifty percent of our um, you know volunteer force was um, you know minority. We even had a couple first generation Cuban Americans who were still um, trying to get, uh, who were still in the process of naturalization. They couldn't even vote yet, and they still knew that they wanted to be Republicans. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's just it's about you know actions diffusing stereotypes rather than just sitting there on Twitter talking about how how we don't hate you know you know, people of color and instead, you know, actively engaging those people, convincing them of what's going on and then empowering them to be able to go out back into their communities and keep the cycle going. So when you go from a small chapter and, and you're trying to build up that recruitment base or, or the, the activist base, um, what were some of the challenges that CR chapters or that you're specifically faced when you are recruiting those activists and kind of how do you overcome uh, that startup period? That was also a big issue for us because we executed all of this in about four months, um, which is wow. 
half the timeline that we wanted going forward, but the primary was so divisive and extended so long, we didn't know who the nominee was going to be until convention finished. And so we weren't able to launch anything until after convention finished. Um, and we had to rapidly retool you know, a lot of the infrastructure we had laid for you know, what was going to be a Trump campaign you know, sort of uh, mentality. It was, you know, we had built infrastructure in mind with sort of a, uh, you know, a, a contemporary or a um, sort of a, I don't want to say normal, but, you know, sort of a more, um, you know, a status quo Republican candidate, somebody like Marco, somebody like Cruz, somebody like, you know, Kasich, somebody who is going to have solid campaign infrastructure is going to have, you know, you know, talking points that, you know, stick throughout a campaign, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we had to rapidly retool that because we were appealing to a totally different base. I don't think it hurt us other than the time factor. I think, you know, we were able to tap into a group of people who never would have been interested in politics in the first place. But, um, you know, when it comes to recruiting, one of the biggest, um, you know, benefits we have, and, and again, I encourage everybody, you know, listening, if you're interested in doing something like this, um, check out, uh, leadership institutes, youth leadership schools. Um, they're, they're either free or low cost. They're all around the country, um, on pretty consistent intervals. Um, and if you can make the drive, generally they're, they're okay with, um, you know, helping to get you there. They want to train you yeah. in how to do this. And they give a lot of the technology for how to do this, but there's a, a, a concept called Facebook graph searching. So we were able to go through and, uh, you know, more or less write a, a sort of, you know, two-part algorithm that was able to search uh, Facebook for people between a certain age who attended a university who liked a specific page. And so, you know, obviously our first go-to was Donald Trump. And then our second go-to was Marco Rubio. And then, you know, there were a couple other pages that we picked up on. And we would we would just start talking to these people. Some of them we knew and we had, um, you know, just forgotten that they were still active or they were still on that campus or whatever. Some of them were, uh, you know, brand new and had never been contacted before. And so, you know, with a, a day's worth really of just, you know, buckling down between six or seven of us, we were able to establish um, a baseline foothold on most of the major state universities in Florida. And for the record, there's almost a million enrolled college students in the state of Florida. Um, millennials in Florida are now the largest voting block. They have surpassed uh, baby boomers. They've surpassed retirees. We now have more voting power than retirees. So Florida is no longer the geriatric state in my mind. Um, you know, and so we we were dealing with a massive universe, and we needed to very rapidly sort of, you know, go from a wide approach down to a, a, a very deep approach. And so we, we specifically targeted people who had clout on campus. So student government representatives, sorority fraternity presidents, club presidents, um, you know, people, you know, sort of not necessarily the popular kids, but the involved kids, the ones that had already shown that they're willing to put sweat equity into something that they believe in. Um, and people who look like they have been able to, to garner respect on campus um, and we would talk to these people, and then we were, it, it just came down to being able to sell them on the vision, sell them on the mission. And and we were pretty successful with it. I don't want to say we, we knocked it out of the park each time. But as we were able to get you know a campus rep or a couple campus reps, we were able to start putting these people in the field. We were able to train them to be able to continue that recruitment process. And so it began to snowball very, very quickly. Um, our first month was almost exclusively fundraising and infrastructure laying. Our uh, second month, we had we had a goal of 100,000 uh, Republican voter registrations, um, which didn't happen because we were actually hit with not one but two hurricanes during the election cycle, which completely shut down all operations for um, about 14 days total. Um, and uh, we, we weren't able to reach it. But the first month that we were active, I think we collected 100 voter registrations. We knocked maybe 1,000 doors. 
Um, and we were freaking out. We were like, this is impossible. We raised a quarter million dollars. We promised these donors that we were going to be doing our best. What is going on? And then it, it, the, the groundwork we had laid started to kick in. And the, the third month that we were in operation, um, you know, we, we hit almost half of our projected door knock numbers. Um, you know, so we were, we were knocking maybe 10 or 15,000 doors that week and then, or a month. And then the, the last month we were in operation, we knocked almost 400,000 doors, or 450,000 doors, um, and talked to you know upwards of half a million students in a single month. Um, and that was just because we were able to scale it up. And so if we'd been able to start two months sooner, um, you know, it, it, I shudder to think the damage we could have inflicted. You know, and if we're able to have a, for the record, the, the Florida, um, the way that the vote in Florida split, this last cycle, just to underscore the the effectiveness of this kind of um, tactic, uh, the millennial vote from when Obama was reelected to this election shifted 17 points. Um, individuals 18 to 29 um, were 17% more likely to vote for Trump um, than they were to vote for Obama in 2014. We were able to close the gap by 17 points. National average um, was five points or four points. And the, the next highest state on the list, the next highest gap that was closed was the state of Wisconsin, um, which closed the gap five points. Um, and so the, the infrastructure that we laid and the, the sort of attack tactics that we used, um, you know, on college campuses, really just militarizing and going door to door, just doing the hardest thing possible, the, the dirty, icky work that nobody wants to do, but doing it at scale and empowering students to be able to, to message to their peers effectively, we were able to triple the amount of votes collected in the state of Florida, uh, triple the change in votes collected in the state of Florida uh, among millennials. And so, you know, we were able to, to sort of beat back some of the stigma and some of the other stuff. And keep in mind, this isn't a swing state. This is not, you know, a deep red state. This is not a state with a, a consistent win record. Um, you know, we've got a pretty solid grip on our state legislator because, as everybody knows, Republican political strategists are leagues above Democratic political strategists. But, um, you know, we, we were starting with like a, a two-point registration um, uh, difference. We, we were two points down, you know, starting, and we were able to close that gap, um, you know, almost instantaneously because of the work that we were doing. So there's three things I want to extract from this because I, I think it's very interesting. And obviously the results speak for themselves. The first thing is I want to pull out the fact that you really did the job of leadership training within activism. I, I think, uh, you know, there, there's one component to just training other people and having them go out. But really, the, the point is, if you can create a legacy of those people um, continuing to do that type of work. And what I'm curious about is, do you know of, of organizations or individuals or groups in other states who are thinking about taking this model, have already been taking this model and applying it to their unique situations. Sorry, say that last part again, you broke up. Do you, do you know of, of any groups or organizations or people who are taking this model of Campus Red and applying it to other states? <clears throat> That's um, a difficult question to answer. I see bits and pieces of it being used across the board. I know Leadership Institute, again, you know, I don't mean to show for them consistently, but you know, they're, they're the origin of all this. They're where I sort of synthesize my ideas from. Um, and, and by I, I mean the team. I, there's no way I did this on my own. This, this was a, a team effort. There was a core team that was you know, at the top, and we were all bouncing off each other on this. Uh, I'm just the one on the podcast right now, so I'm going to take credit for it. Um, 
I think I think there there has been interest from a couple people. Um, Illinois, um, the Illinois College Republicans have have uh, uh, talked about you know doing something similar. Um, Texas um, did something much smaller in scale, uh, but they did execute um, a couple uh, campus canvases at specific universities this last cycle. Again, nothing nothing to the scale of you know a quarter million dollars. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, not everybody lives in Florida and is able to raise that kind of money, um, you know, for for, uh, you know, an unproven project. I'm super thankful to everybody who supported us in that. Um, you know, I, I think I think really the the issue with mass adoption on this is just how difficult the work is. And, and I don't want to lie to you or anybody else and say that, you know, we just. You know, we found a formula and we we pushed a button and it worked. No, it was it was grinding. I mean, we put in hundreds of thousands of man hours, you know, on the back end getting this thing running, and, and hundreds of thousands of hours, you know, man hours of volunteer hours, you know, going out and knocking these doors. It was grueling, backbreaking, you know, sweat-inducing work. It was not easy, um, by any means. And we have an incredible team of you know volunteers, and I think we had something like 250 volunteers working with us on this, and maybe 20, 25 paid activists. And by paid. I use the term paid very, very loosely. They were paid, you know, the equivalent of slave wages because it was all we could afford. Um, you know, but but they were they were engaged and they believed in the vision. Um, you know, and so I think if somebody else can replicate that on a larger scale, or if we can transition it into something that is sustainable and scalable, something that's less, you know, uh, you know, let's let's just blow this out in four months, something where we're able to build it more gradually over eight or nine or ten months, um, and be able to launch, you know, a full scale offensive, you know, either in the next presidential or during midterms. I think it's something that could definitely be expanded regionally, especially to states that are borderline swing regions. You know, we've, we're we're defending a couple states for Senate. We've got opportunities to poach up to thirteen Senate seats uh, from the Democrats. Uh, we're going to have a hard fought battle in the in the House. You know, I think there's a lot of room. Um, to grow, you know, in this thing, but again, it requires a very specific mix of of sort of um, uh, situational, you know, advantages. You, know, you have to have, uh, you know, either money or access to money. Um, you know, though you can do it at smaller scale without needing, you know, hardly any money. We did it at PVA with with five dollars. I bought I bought a single box of pizza for the volunteers the first day that they went out, and that was the total overhead for you know registering 250 voters on my campus. Um, you know, you need um, you know a pretty solid stratified leadership across you know a dozen chapters. We ended up canvassing 16 universities. We we were targeting 24. We ended up canvassing 16 um, in the state of Florida. You know, and we were only able to do that because I had a rock-solid network of incredible chapter chairs who were completely on board with just kicking butt. Um, you know, and without them, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have made a move. We wouldn't have, have budged an inch. Um, and, and lastly, you have to have um, you have to have the tactics down, um, or you have to be willing to personally put in the time. And I'm talking about some, as somebody who, you know, was one of the leaders on this. Um, you know, there was no sort of armchair management on this. You know, we were out on campus, you know, consistently, you know, knocking doors, especially for the first couple months. The last month and a half, I think we we switched focus to try and make sure that we were, you know, doing right by all the people we contacted. We started, you know, phone banking to follow up with these people, make sure they turned in absentee ballots, make sure they went out and vote, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, and so the 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 position changed a little bit, but you know it. I don't. I don't currently see anybody imitating what we did in Florida. Um, I think it is incredibly possible, and I think that there are some people that are interested in doing it. Um, and I think that there are organizations out there that build specific 
segments of that leadership training. I think Young America's Foundation is a good example of this. They they specifically train leaders to recruit more leaders. Um, you know, not just activists, not just you know Twitter warriors, but leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they 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 put people on the ground. Um, you know, whether they're field reps or whether they're just, you know, chapter chairs, superstar chapter chairs, and those people's jobs are to identify leaders. And it's a very sort of selfless mentality you have to have because it's so easy to, to carve out, you know, quote unquote, your turf in a political atmosphere and then just sit there and push everybody down or keep everybody down so that you can continue being top dog. It takes, it takes a very different type of person to actively try to find somebody who has better potential than you do and then plug them in with the resources they need to grow into a leader, into a fighter. Um, and, and that's not easy to do. Uh, and what sticks out to me, I, I'd imagine the, mo- the motivation part behind this is uh, fairly challenging. In, in 2016 specifically, the one variable you couldn't really control was a candidate that wasn't as popular per se. Um, but really, the, the bulk of this is, it's as you mentioned, it's hard work, little to no pay. Um, how did you find, what did you find to be an effective way of motivating these activists when it just seems like this is a huge project and I'm not really sure how we're going to get it done? Right. Well, the first step was not explaining to them the scope of what we were doing until they were already invested. They were already on board. Um, you know, going to a college student saying, hey, we need your help to help us contact a million college students in the next month and a half is going to send them screaming for the hills. But unless going they're to somebody, really driven. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless you're, you know, a, a sadist or a masochist like myself, <laughs> uh, you know, you're 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 going to you're going to scare them away. Going to somebody who's active in their chapter, a freshman or a sophomore who just got you know involved and, and really wants to cut their teeth on something and saying, hey, you know, I need you, breaking it down for them, you know, hey, I need you to take charge of canvassing your entire dorm. Now, I need, I know that sounds daunting, you know, there are, you know, a hundred doors, you know, in your dorm, but you've got a month to do it, and you can recruit as many friends as you want to help, um, you know, and, and you just need to split it up, and you need to go door by door, and if somebody's not there, you need to make sure you schedule that you come back and you talk to them again, et cetera, um, you know, and then we'll handle the back end, you know, as you collect these people's information and the people who want an absentee ballot, the people who want more information, the people who want to become volunteers will handle that. The only thing we need you to do is go talk to your friends. Um, it becomes much easier for them to execute that. And you'll find, you know, sort of trial by fire, the people that do that and get it done within like three days are the ones that you then put in charge of recruiting the other people to do it in other dorms because they have demonstrated that they can lead by example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the second thing I, I think it was, was crucial was, um, Lauren Cooley and I, um, if you haven't, um, if, if you're not aware of her, uh, to everybody listening, go, go look her up on Twitter. She's uh, absolutely incredible. She was my, my co-founder, um, on campus red pack. So together we, we started this organization and we, we launched the project, we raised the money, et cetera. Um, Lauren and I decided from the very beginning that we were not going to go the way of a lot of other conservative organizations where it's sort of, you know, armchair general, um, you know, very lofty salaries and, and, you know, expense accounts, et cetera. We paid ourselves exactly the same as we paid our field reps. Um, you know, and we did the exact same work as, as our field reps did, except we just put in more hours because we also had to run the back end of the organization. Um, you know, and being able to look somebody in the eye and say, I am not making any money from this. By the time the government is done, I can't even, I can't even hardly cover rent, you know, and then going out and pulling a 12 hour shift and making sure that, you know, you're able to, I'm able to drive 
you know, eight and a half hours to Tallahassee to make it there for an activism event that Don Jr. is going to be at, et cetera, um, is probably the most powerful way to inspire people to, to rise to the challenge. When they see the person that, you know, recruited them doing more work than them uh, for less pay, it's generally a, a pretty easy way to get people fired up and get them focused. Nothing saps energy and enthusiasm like being ordered around. Um, you know, there's a difference between a leader and a boss. A leader is, you know, at the front pulling. Uh, along with everybody else and a boss is, is sort of riding in the carriage, cracking a whip. And, and I, I think that that's, that's the vital part, right? It's making them a part of that story and making them a hero in that story um, and, and, and empowering them to, to do kind of the work autonomously in some respects. Right. Um, and, and I don't mean to interject, but you, sure. you hit on exactly what I've been trying to say but didn't have the words for, it's about empowering people. And I know that's a buzzword that everybody uses and throws around like nothing, but if you really dig down into the, the meat and potatoes of any time you've felt you know, powerful, any time you've felt successful or, or uh, able to achieve a goal, it's because somebody else believed in you and gave you the resources that you needed to pull that off. Um, you know, it, it, and, and not in like a demeaning way, like you couldn't have done it yourself, but, but there is no greater feeling in this world than standing back to back with somebody you respect and, and, and taking on something impossible. There's just, there is no better feeling and being able to provide that to, to 2050, 250 something volunteers, you know, and encouraging them to know exactly what we're fighting for, giving them a very simple vision, a very simple mission and, and equipping them with the skills and, and telling them sort of, you know, here are, you know, the landmines you want to avoid. You know, for instance, if a reporter tries to ambush you while you're doing something in the dorm, you give me a, you give me a phone call before you open your mouth, you know, and, and, and equip them to handle anything that comes their way and then let them operate on their own and set up a chain of command. So they've got, you know, they've got a, a chapter or a, a campus captain who can handle most things. And then, you know, we've got regionals that can handle, you know, the things that get above that. And then you've got the sort of the, 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 the core statewide team that, you know, if something comes up, like for instance, we had a chapter kicked off of campus by their uh, administration because of the campus canvas that they were doing. They were quote unquote breaking free speech laws. And so, you know, that's not something a chapter chair, you know, any normal chapter chair is equipped to handle, especially in the middle of an election. And so I got a phone call uh, from my chapter chair, Charlotte Davis at, uh, at UWF saying, Hey, here's the facts. This is what's going on. You know, and I made about a half a dozen phone calls. Uh, first thing, I, first person I called was fire uh, foundation for independent uh, individual rights in education. They're huge advocates for free speech. Um, I called the CRNC. I, I called my bosses, you know, I called the people way up the chain, you know, who have the, the muscle to be able to shut something like that down. And then I called every news outlet that I knew and I put them on blast for about three days. Um, until the offending uh, student council member was relieved of his position and um, the university issued a retraction of, uh, of their dismissal of the, uh, the club from campus. The club was allowed to continue um, its activism on campus. And so, you know, that's not a situation that, you know, an individual is supposed to be able to handle, be able to handle alone, but knowing, especially after that, knowing that when they get into trouble, because they will, because this is college activism, you will get into trouble, knowing that you know the people that are providing the infrastructure for you are the same ones that are going to have your back until the very end is is a huge, huge benefit. Do you think that uh, the the local and even the state parties? Do you think that they're using um, college activists, young activists, as effectively as they could be? Absolutely not. Um, so what, what's, what's the tip there? If, if you were, if you were telling them, um, 
how to do that better, what's the tip you would give? The tip would be you need to put a college student in charge. Um, not, not the state party, obviously that's probably the worst idea. Um, <laughs> you know, but when it comes to deploying college students, you know, appropriately, you need to put a college student in charge. You know, so often I'd get a phone call from somebody within the party, um, you know, asking me to last minute help, you know, make sure that there were volunteers to help set up an event. And I turned down 90% of the requests that I got, you know, if I wasn't given enough notice and I wasn't given a reason for doing it, et cetera, I wouldn't even bring it to my chapters because it just was not part of the vision. You know, our goal was to grow the pie as much as possible. Our goal was not to help, you know, frame pictures for, you know, candidates. You know, of course, there was a fair amount of that because, you know, college students are, you know, super enthused about meeting the candidates that they're, you know, bleeding for on college campuses. You know, but our job was not to 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 shill for these people. Our job was to grow the brand and to to grow the activists. For for every day that I kept my people on campus you know, working on recruiting, we were able to almost double the size of our volunteer force. Um, you know, and so every day that I took them off of that was, was, you know, of negligible impact. And now we're in the off season and, you know, the Florida Federation of College Republicans is now the largest, um, federation of college Republicans in the country by a substantial margin. Um, you know, and these students are, are crazy active. We've got, you know, I think, Last I checked, nine super chapters, which means nine chapters with more than 250 active members. You know, and a lot of these are in swing districts. University of Central Florida, for instance, is in um, Congressman John Micah's old district. Um, he was beaten by uh, Stephanie something. I can't remember her last name. Uh, Stephanie Murphy or Murray Murphy, I think. Um, but she's, she, it's, it's a, it's a D plus one district, you know, it's a one, one point registration advantage. And so it is very much in play this coming cycle. And, you know, this chapter is continuing to grow at an exponential rate by the time 2018 rolls around, you know, 2017, midway through 2017, there's going to be a volunteer force of 400, 500 students on campus who are going to first go back to all of the freshmen and sophomores that have joined the school since then, recruit another 200, 300 volunteers, and then are going to absolutely murder the ground game in congressional district seven. Like it, it's going to be, it's going to be painful to to watch, um, you know. But it's it's about adapting, uh, sort of adopting uh, a long view game, a uh, long view of it. And I think state parties, and part of this is our fault as a movement, as a conservative movement, as a young young conservative movement, is we've marginalized ourselves, right? You know, we we cause issues, or um, you know, we are uh, not faithful on following through all the time, or you know, et cetera. We're not able to, to muster the clout and the muscle we need to be treated with the respect that, that we think we deserve by these state parties. And it's not without good reason, you know. Um, you know, I, I think I think earning that credibility back is the first step. But I think if a state party really, really wants to empower a, a federation of college Republicans or a group of conservative activists or, you know, even people in the millennial gener- generation who are, you know, out of college. You have to empower an individual or a small group of individuals within that movement with the support necessary to do what they decide to do. They cannot be, you know, coffee carriers. They cannot be, you know, at the beck and call of people. They cannot, you know, work a thousand hours cold calling the same, um, you know, uh, 1500 micro targeted absentee ballot list that's already been called 18 times in exchange for an internship that the person that recruited them forgets to actually sign a, a letter of recommendation for. They have to be part of something that they can see the results on. Um, and I think the first step towards doing that is just giving them the reins. 
finding somebody you trust and giving them the reins. Sounds like some personal stories built in there, but uh, we'll (laughs) probably get to that at another time. Um, I've been reading more about Generation Z, which are basically the the teenagers now, the the youths of the youths. And um, something interesting about them, of course, their frame, they they don't really remember 9-11, but they remember obviously the war, uh, the, the Great Recession, They've been shaped by um, the Obama presidency. And now some of the oldest of them are entering college this fall and will continue to enter college, of course. They're more conservative uh, as a result of their life experiences. And in addition to that, they're more independent, more entrepreneurial driven. Um, so I think it, it's kind of obvious, but just to hear your take on this, what, what does that mean for the future of college, uh, college activism on the right I think I think I mean obviously it's good um, you know that's that's without question and I think it, it's an accurate statement you know if, if you and I are gonna get screwed by Social Security by the time we're 65 you know these kids you know the, the ones five you know eight years younger than us are don't even have a hope they don't even have a prayer at being able to be the recipient of these you know these dated and uh, <clears throat> expiring you know sort of social welfare programs you know, and so there's no real emphasis for them on, you know, guilt tripping people from a liberal moral high ground. And so I think you're right. I think they are going to lean more conservative necessarily. And I think it's important for us to empower them. And, and I keep using that word, but to, to, to clear the way for them. And I think the best way to do that is to, you know, m- uh, militarize on campus in the off season to fight back against, you know, free speech zones, res- free speech zone restrictions, and to continue to hold um, public school administrations, public college administrations, um, incredibly accountable. They need to be on short leash, on short notice when it comes to expanding and pushing liberal bias. Um, you know, and, and there's a fine line there where you're sort of, uh, you know, McCarthying, you know, these college professors into not having an opinion. But at the end of the day, it boils down to it is state funded education. And so it should be neutral. Um, you know, if, if a professor is abusing that, then they need to be exposed and they need to be, they need to, they need to suffer consequences. I don't want to say punished, but they need to suffer the consequences of their actions of, of their choice to try and, you know, brainwash or indoctrinate these, these students. And those are both very extreme terms, but you know, it, you sort of get the, the point. Um, you know, if you only present one side of the argument and you do it long enough, eventually that side of the argument will imprint on these people and they'll be incapable of hearing the other side, not necessarily, you know, coming over to our side, this isn't necessarily about, you know, building a brainwashing organization of our own, but it is about allowing people the freedom to be able to make logical decisions on their end. And I would bet that if somebody's able to suspend their emotional gut response from, you know, their professor, you know, not giving them an A on an, on an essay that, you know, says anything favorable about Republicans, um, if they're able to use logic in a vacuum, they're going to be able to to quickly suss out the fact that while not perfect and while not always perfectly consistent, um, conservative principles will win out far more than 50% of the time. You know, less government, less spending, more personal freedoms, more individual responsibilities, fewer you know government restrictions, fewer um, you know looming you know programs, you know lowering the debt. You know, lightening the load of tax burdens, em- empowering the free market within the bounds of reason. You know, I'm I'm a I'm not you know the the deregulate all the things kind of conservative though. I mean, maybe tiny a, a tiny little bit in the corner. Um, you know, but but these are these are messages that resonate with me and with my generation, with our generation. But I think they're going to resonate even better 
with the the coming generation. And I've already I already think we've switched our messaging tact sufficiently enough that we're no longer behind the eight ball. We're no longer behind the Democrats when it comes to reaching people on campus. All we're fighting now is an institutional bias. And I think, to be perfectly honest, that puts us in the underdog position, which is the strong position. You know that that puts us in the position where we are fighting sort of the establishment, um, you know, the, the, the liberal establishment. And we're not fighting them based on principles. We're fighting them based on um, the fact that they're abusing their power. And that's always, you know, the more that they want to continue to try to overreach is fine by me because there are dozens of organizations that live to expose this kind of nonsense. And again, another shout out to a project of Leadership Institute, but campus reform has been an invaluable asset to myself and to hundreds of other college Republicans when it comes to exposing these sort of um, issues on campus and being able to break it down to the point where you're able to, able to apply national pressure to a very specific group of people and make sure that an administration is knows that they cannot get away scot-free with just running rampant. Zooming out from the campus level, um, you talk about messaging, and I, I agree with you. I think it's really encouraging how more intellectually honest the uh, the arguments being made by young conservatives are getting. Um, and, and what that change has looked like. It's less sensational. It's a little more, uh, uh, a little more intellectually bound. And so, uh, but I, I, I do still see, um, I do still see on social media that sometimes it can get out of hand, right? You've probably <laughs> seen that too. And, and sometimes um, when, when you're not interacting with people face-to-face and you're online, it can very much so change to a focus of triggering people or just engaging in in a really nasty form of it rather than um, advocating for ideas and principles or or truly being an activist and a leader. Um, What are your thoughts on social media? Because obviously it was, it was a big, it it continues to be a big deal for uh, the CRs, but also I know that it was a big component of campus red. So what do you see there in terms of effective outreach and kind of combating that uh, that nasty side of it all? Well, let me start off with a, a, your friendly daily reminder that Twitter followers do not equal votes. Um, and I can't believe that that is something that I have to say as consistently as I do, um, but it is, the, it is the case. And that doesn't mean social media is useless. It is one of the most powerful tools if it's used properly. But as an you know, uh, I actually, this wasn't Leadership Institute that I learned this from for once, um, but another conservative training that I, I went to and I ended up, you know, helping instruct later down the road. Um, I learned, um, you know, something very, very poignant, and that is, if you are not going to change somebody's mind in a conversation, if you're not going to get them to sit back and say, "Hey, you're not such a bad guy," or your arguments kind of make sense. Let me think about my position and maybe moderate it a little bit. Not necessarily come over your side, but just moderate it. Then you have no business being in that conversation. There's no point in quote unquote triggering people. There's no point in you know um, you know pulling fast punches and scoring political points. All it does is is contribute to the hyperpolarization that we're seeing you know between ideologies. Um, you know, I, I, I've, and, and, and I'm victim to it too. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I, I've never engaged in it. You know, it, 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 you have a bad day and you just need to trigger some liberals. And so you post a picture of a $2 bill and say, if I had a dollar for every gender there was, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't contribute, you know, to, to building the movement. It, it, it gets a couple giggles. It, maybe it raises your profile a little bit, but more importantly, it wastes time. It wastes your time. It wastes the time of the people watching it. 
And it sets a bad example for people like Generation X and, you know, first year college Republicans, and I'm speaking from experience here, where they think that that is the optimal way to message, that is the optimal way to campaign, and it's not. Um, you know, we've got a, a saying within college Republicans, which is um, it, it, maybe a, sort of an adaptation of Frank Underwood, but, you know, you are entitled to nothing. Specifically, you know, you are entitled to none of my respect until I've, until we fought in the trenches together, until I've, you know, we, we've, we've knocked doors together, until we've made phone calls together, until I've seen you act out your beliefs in real life physically, put time and effort and energy into advocating for what you believe in off of social media, I'm not going to take anything you say seriously. It's just not going to happen. Mm. Um, you know, and that's definitely sort of a, a harsh approach. And I think that's probably born out of, again, the hyper-militarization that we had in Florida, you know, but it's something that's proved effective. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, there are a lot of moderates. There are a lot of moderates that we can poach. There are so many. I've got my friends list is swarming with them. And what I've learned is that the more I post that hyperpolarizing crap, the more I lose their attention and their focus. Yeah. When I'm able to post a, a video of Mick Mulvaney, you know, explaining that, you know, the the ultimate goal of the you know Office of Management and Budget is to reduce the tax burden on every American by a specific amount and explain concisely, you know, I'm able to reach the the the, the girl I graduated from college with who, you know, posts on Facebook and is like 11% taxes, like the government's taking more than 10% of my income without me ever being able to see it. And and I'm able to sit there sipping my tea like Kermit the Frog, like I told you so. <laughs> Come to the dark side, we have cookies. You know, it, it's it's how you win. It's how, it, that is how, and, it, and it's a battle of inches. It's not a battle of miles. You, you, just because you go viral with, you know, your $2, you know, number of genders pick, you know, doesn't mean you've accomplished anything other than you know making yourself feel real good about your current state in life um it's it's counterproductive and it's destructive and it's something that you know continues to plague the conservative movement and it's something that i think we really want to focus on stopping and and by stopping you know and again i fall victim to this too sometimes it's easier to just barge down the front door you know guns blazing but the best way to convince somebody to change the way they act the way they the message is by education um, it's by firsthand experience. It's, it's by it's by engaging them, you know, in a different method. You can't tell somebody to stop doing something without giving them something else to do. And I think ultimately, if if you're not able to to do something, like you mentioned, have a have a real discussion about how issues affect people and and the specifics behind it, uh, maybe that's a sign that you're not as as equipped to be um, uh, to be an activist if you don't know what the specifics of those policies are i understand not everyone's a policy wonk but understanding um more than just i know this picture will piss people off exactly uh, is is perhaps key of that so i'm sure we could we could speak uh, at length about uh, about all that but um you know the bottom line is is be smart about it and don't think that you're doing <sighs> activism if if you're adding nothing to a conversation um I want to ask a few rapid-fire questions as we conclude our time here. Um, and the first one is, what is your why? What motivates you to do what you do? Um, you know what? This is going to sound really corny, but my ultimate life uh, life goal, uh, my ultimate goal in life is to be as outstanding a father as I possibly can. Um, you know, I want to provide the world to my children. I, I was raised luckily in a, in a, in a nuclear family with a mom and a dad who loved each other. I never saw my parents argue once, um, n- never once. I'm sure they did, but they were just always incredibly careful to keep it away from, 
you know, uh, our eyes and our ears as children. Um, you know, and I want to provide, you know, the same stability and love and opportunities to my children. And I want to provide more. Um, you know, I think that's how you, you grow, uh, your family and, and to a degree, you know, I realize that we're living in simultaneously the best and worst time in America's history. We're, you know, we're at a tipping point. We're at a, you know, at a cornerstone moment in our nation's, you know, history. And and we're either going to tip towards, um, you know, the, the right, and I hesitate to use that, but, you know, really back towards the foundation of, of this country, back towards individualism, back towards liberty, or we're going to tip towards, you know, a more totalitarian regime. That's why I hated most of what Obama did. That's why I'm still critical of some of the stuff that Trump does. I think the more power we centralize, the more dangerous it gets. Um, you know, and I want to provide um, a better America to my children. And I don't think that I'm the guy that single-handedly changes it, but I think that I could be the guy that brings an additional 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 people who otherwise never would be educated or care about these issues into the fold and empower them to do the same. And so, you know, sort of like a, how a pebble drops in a pond and you see ripple effects, like those ripples are not going to start a tidal wave on their own, but you start throwing enough pebbles in and eventually you're going to get some pretty solid surf. Yeah, I, I like that motivation. I, I think that that, uh, um, it's, it, it's admirable and it, it's not, uh, it's not maybe the, the grandest you're not changing the world by, uh, by, by raising good kids, but you, you know, like you said, you're, you're part of that. Uh, that um, ex- excuse me, Stephen. my kids will rule the world. My son will be God emperor of mankind. Your son is uh, not Baron Trump. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Calm not, down. The, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Watch, watch me work. <laughs> buy your kids some, uh, some cool new balances. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to buy some Yeezys. That's right. Uh, if, if you had, Super Bowl commercial, uh, uh, a billboard on a on a huge interstate. What is that one message that you could fit into that format um, that you most want the world to hear? Honestly, um, I think one of the most effective messaging points that we've ever had. Uh, we had two actually. Uh, the one I'd probably put on the billboard is is really simple. It would just be you know a, a picture of a group of millennials. Um, you know, probably a picture of my group of millennials, my, my core friends, you know, sitting around with, with a ticking indicator above their head representing the sh- their share of the national debt, which will come due during our lifetimes. Um, you know, just realizing that we're all starting $100,000, $300,000 dollars behind when you factor in student loans and the bubble, et cetera, um, and just making that really, really clear. The other messaging point that we had that was incredibly effective uh, when it came to identifying people was what do you, what do you consider a greater threat, um, ISIS? Or global warming, um, you know, being able to very quickly suss out sort of which direction people are likely to, to land, um, and and being able to to you know pivot on that one issue and bring them into the big tent party. You know, if we can agree on one thing, if we can agree on one issue, I will get you to register as a Republican. I walked up to a, a, a dorm of uh, four guys, um, one of which was a gay African American drug dealer who literally tried to sell me weed at the door. Whoa. Um, and I told him that I was a Republican. He got all weird about it. I was like, no, it's okay, man. You know, like the world's not going to end. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm a normal human being who's not going to freak out about this, I swear. And uh, the three of them invited me inside. And um, they're all, you know, probably stoned out of their minds, you know, <laughs> eating, you know, four boxes of Domino's pizza. And I walk out of that room with three Republican registrations. Um, you know, because I was able to tell, and this, and this was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was walking with a pep in my step afterwards. <laughs> um, you know, I was able to, the, the, the gay African American uh, guy had a real heart for, you know, uh, homosexual, um, equality, LGBT issues, but mm-hmm. not sort of like the radical, 
you know, um, Antifa style LGBT, but, you know, just equality, wanting to be treated equally, wanting to not be looked down on. And I was able to commiserate with him on that and say, you know what, the Republican Party is not perfect, but there are people like me in it who are working to change it. Also, what do you think about taxes? And that's when I got him. Yeah, it's that pivot. I like it. Um, very cool. What, what issues do you think are going to be coming at? You already mentioned one, one of being the debt. What issues do you think within the next I don't know, 10 to 20 years, certainly within our lifetime, are going to be the big issues of the day. The drug war um, is the other huge one. Um, And the national security to a slightly lesser degree. Um, In our lifetime, we will see the abolition of of the drug war. I don't know if we'll necessarily see mass legalization. And I'm not sure, you know, exactly where I stand on that, though. Caleb is probably going to hunt me down and kill me after I said that. (laughs) Yeah. you know, it, it, we're, we're going to, it, it is something that fundamentally has to change. We are overpopulated in our prisons. The drug war so disproportionately affects African Americans and low income minorities in, in our country that it is almost laughable. It is almost laughable. And to be perfectly honest, the drug war is something that both parties have culpability in. You know, Richard Nixon started it, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, reinforced it, but Bill Clinton you know, went ahead and signed mandatory minimums, which have completely destroyed the concept of a nuclear family within inner city communities. Um, you know, it is something that fundamentally has to change. These people have to stop going to jail for 30 years for the possession of three grams of marijuana. It is absolutely absurd. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, pushing back against cartel violence, pushing back against, you know, drug overdoses, I think the opioid e- epidemic and I'm going to get a lot of laughs for this because, um, you know, some of my friends don't agree. But the opioid epidemic is is a scourge upon our country. It is worse than the HIV epidemic was in the 80s and the 90s, uh, 70s and the 80s uh, or 80s and 90s. Um, it yeah. kills so many people. It destroys so many lives. And, and the fact that the FDA just continues to crack down on it does not help these people that are suffering. And it is a problem that we created. I'm not a fan of government intervention, but in a case where the government is the one causing the problem, we need to fi- figure out a way to fix it. And I think that that is a humanitarian thing that, that every segment, every sector of, of millennials is going to be able to agree on. To, to a degree. I mean, not everybody's going to want to, you know, uh, 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 you know, abolish the drug trade or sorry, the, the drug war. Not everybody's going to want to, you know, provide, you know, uh, assistance for getting off of, you know, heroin or fentanyl, you know, or, or opioids, stepping yourself off of it. But I think if we can start, you know, putting a, 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 a start, start, start cutting big pharma down to size, stop, start reducing their, you know, effect on government legislation on a state and national level. I think we're going to be on track to really affect incredible change in this country and start start narrowing the divide, um, you know, between both ideologies, socioeconomic classes, et cetera. Sure. Um, what is the one book that has influenced you the most? Ooh. Um, Take a look at I the bookshelf. Yeah, I was about to say, I could be cliche and say Machiavelli. Um, you know, uh, there are, you know, P- Plato's Republic is incredible. So some um, classics, yeah. The the classics are my favorite, but at the same time, you know, you, you have to be equipped to be able to do what you need to do. I think, you know, Morton Blackwell's, um, you know, Rules for Public Policy, it's like a mm. really short pamphlet, is incredible. Um, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals has really sort of generated the edge that I use to fight with. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of exceptional books out there. I, 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 if you're looking to, to bulk up and to... to you know, build your repertoire and, and your, you know, your arsenal and to, to round yourself out as a person and as a political operative or as an activist, I would stay away from biographies. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, overanalyzing, 
um, you know, the life of, you know, Reagan or, you know, Bill O'Reilly or, you know, Kennedy is going to really do you all that much good. It's good to get historical context, but really, you know, and one of the rules for public policy Morton Blackwell talks about is you owe it to your ideology to learn how to win. You need to learn how to win. Um, you know, and so I think finding those, those textbooks and, and if I had to narrow it down, I'd probably say rules for radicals. You know, it was, it was written by a left-wing communist engaged in actively trying to subvert the American democratic system for distribution to other left-wing demo, uh, uh, um, communists uh, in the United States and, and across the world. It was, a, it was essentially a, a follow-up to the Communist Manifesto with tactical game plans, um, and it's become incredibly popularized you know, as uh, it's brilliant. It's brilliantly written, honestly. It's one of the most cutting um, uh, examples of human psychology exposed in a political sense. Um, and knowing sort of the tactics of the left that they've adopted almost as second nature and knowing how to counter them um, and then also how to execute those similar tactics to your own benefit and, and not as, you know, I don't want to say as skeevy or as, you know, unethically, but, but knowing how people tick and how best to talk to them, how best to convince them that you are on their side, uh, the better chance your ideology has of flourishing. It's sort of like political evolution 101. You know, you want you want to pass your ideology on to as many people as possible before you kick the bucket. What about a book that you would gift to another person? Let's say outside of the, uh, like it's not a friend who's going to become an activist. Um, so what's a book that you would give them? Um... Probably either Plato's Republic or the Four Hour Work Week, and it would depend on the person. Um, the Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss—it's um, an incredible book. Yeah, and and it, it's it's applicable to any walk of life. You know, you could be a starving artist and and you know gain something from it. You could be a political operative or an entrepreneur and get something out of it. Um, I think Plato's Republic is is something that requires a certain mindset to understand and to digest. But I think if somebody is apt for it, I think it's probably one of the single most linchpin you know arguments for democracy for for constitutional democracy for republic democracy uh barring that you know de tocqueville anything by de tocqueville um you know or john Locke's second treatise on civil government very cool uh well Cade, i i've really enjoyed our conversation here uh i i think that this one the longer episodes but certainly i think a really valuable episode um and hopefully some people are listening out there and and they get encouraged to to become activists on campus so um, I, I want to ask you, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter is probably the easiest at, uh, Cade Marsh FL. That's C A D E M A R S H F L. And yes, I do have a unique first name and yes, I am a snowflake. Um, you can also generally find me at any point by just typing in the hashtag taxation is theft. More than likely I'm going to be the top tweet. Oh boy. Um, and just friendly reminder that taxation is theft. Sorry, Stephen. To edit that out. <laughs> uh, well, uh, and, and now you're off the uh, you're off the peasant list. So I'm off the peasant list. So congratulations. That's, that's, but you're that's, not. I don't think you're you're on the not a peasants list, though, are you? Well, I, I'll take middle ground over being a peasant. So. Yeah, the, the other place to find more information about getting involved on your campus would be um, crnc.org, College Republican National Committee.org. Um, there are listings for all the state federations and then sublistings for all of the active chapters in the country. Um, if you are on campus and you're looking to get involved, you want to get plugged in with the infrastructure already there. 
college Republicans is a good home base. Even if you don't necessarily have the campaign mindset, you will meet friends, you will meet people that you want to work with, and you'll meet other organizations as part of that hub, that sort of central hub, that infrastructure that exists. So um, definitely want to encourage everybody to get involved uh, to whatever degree that they want to. Cade Marsh, thank you for coming on my show. Always a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you, man. Thanks to Cade for coming on the show, and thank you for listening to the show. What what an incredible effort you've put forward in your life. I, I'm very proud of you. Um, you can follow me on social media at Stephen underscore Perkins. That's Stephen with a PH. Don't forget the underscore on Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash Stephen Perkins. Follow Outset at Outset Network on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uniform across all the platforms. And until we speak again, have a happy 4th of July. Celebrate America's independence. God bless. Take care. Take care.